Okay, so turn to Romans 9. We're continuing. Hopefully we'll finish Romans 9 tonight. And maybe next time we'll talk about Romans 10. Not really sure yet. But in uh, Romans 9 verse 17, we were talking about last time, where it says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And uh, we talked about how, you know, we read some commentaries and, and we talked about how the, where he talked about he raised Pharaoh up. It wasn't in the sense of like you raise your child to be a doctor or, or a lawyer or, you know, anything like that. But, but it was that he raised him up. He lifted him up as an example to be seen throughout all the earth and stuff. And uh, so tonight we want to talk about verse uh, 18 in particular. It says, So then he, God, has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. And uh, there's a lot of controversy on these scriptures about God hardening who he desires and, and all this kind of stuff. And, and uh, we really want to study that and, and kind of dig into it because, again, it goes to the nature and character of who God is. Okay? Is God the type of, of person, if we can call him a person, because he does have personality. So he is, in that sense, a person. Is he the type of person who will raise someone up as a puppet to, to punish them? Or, or is, and is he the type of person who, will, who causes people to do things, to do evil things, so that he can make an example of them, Right. And so we want to look a little bit about like who Pharaoh is. Um, again, did God handpick Pharaoh? Um, I mean, surely there were many political people like him that were hungry for power. And we all know the saying, power corrupts absolute, power corrupts absolutely. And the thing about it is, is you think about the, the kings and the leaders back in those times. They had absolute authority. They had absolute power. And in most cases, to be a pharaoh, to be a king, you had to be a ruthless person, right? Because number one, you had to be, you know, ruthless to, to get that position. And then you had to be ruthless to keep that position. Um, even, even stories about Herod, about how like he, he kicked one of his wives to death and he, he killed a couple of his other sons and, and things of that nature. That was not at all uncommon for kings and Pharaoh was a king of, of ancient times. Um, you know, and, and we look a lot of times we look through the, the lens of our own history and the lens of our own times. And we kind of project that on the on the peoples back then. But that's not the way that pharaohs were. That's not the way kings were back then. Uh, again, they had absolute power and they had absolute authority and they weren't afraid to use it. Uh, in Genesis 40, we, rem uh, we remember the story of Joseph when he was in prison with the cupbearer and the baker. Right. And how the king. Um, just basically executed, I think it was the baker and stuff. And uh, turn to Exodus chapter 1. Because what we want to do is we want to see what type of person Pharaoh was. And we want to try to discern from the story and look into the story and see, was, was this a person that God used as a puppet to do his will? Or was, was he a person who God... Um, uh, I'm not sure how to put that, but God took him 
and and bent him to his will, right? Does that make sense? And then Exodus 1, verse 6. This is talking about, in verse 6, Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty. So the land was filled with them. Verse 8, now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply, and in the event of war they also will join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So, number one, he's scared that they're going to fight against them. But number two, there's also a selfish motive in it, in that he's like, these guys are going to leave us. And so he doesn't want them to leave. Verse 11, so they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. And they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread out. So, that, so the more they multiplied and the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously and they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks and all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. So this is giving us a picture into who Pharaoh was. He was just using these people, right? For his own purposes, for his own glory. It talks about how they built pyramids for them. They built all these things. They built storage cities. And so, again, they, and they were harsh taskmasters over them. Um, in verse 15, Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of, one of whom was named Shipra and the other was named Pua. And he said, When you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it's a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it's a daughter, she'll live. So again, we're seeing how ruthless they are. This was not just a good person that, that did bad things. This is a bad person. He's using these people for his own, his own purposes. And we talk all the time in the church about how wicked Herod was because he, he killed the infants in Bethlehem, right? And he was wicked. But if you think about it, Bethlehem was a very tiny city and, and there probably weren't that many infants in the city of Bethlehem. Now, I'm not saying that there weren't a, a few of them, but you know what I'm saying? It wasn't like it was a huge metropolis. But here we have Pharaoh doing the same exact thing. He's killing infants because he's afraid of what might happen. He doesn't want them to grow too powerful, so he's putting them to death. And what's interesting to me is that the last plague on the Egyptians was God killed the firstborn in all the house of, of Pharaoh. He says, uh, verse 17, But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? The, the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as, as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and can give birth before the midwives can get to them. So anyway, um, in verse 22, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. Okay, so again, we're just we're getting some pictures into who Pharaoh was. Um, he's he was a leader. Is his the philosophy obviously was the ends justifies the means, whatever it takes. Okay, he was ruthless. I mean, anyone that will order killing children is ruthless, right? 
I mean, it's, it's, it's worse than abortion in a sense because it would be like if the government ordered you to put your child to death. And that's what they do in China. Right. If it's if it's a male son, male son in China, they expect. Yeah, is it the is if, if it's a female, they expect it to be put to death. And why? Again, it's because the ends justifies the means. Um. Again, in, in general, the pharaohs built huge monuments to themselves. Um, they they would do these huge carvings on the mo- on monuments, telling about who they defeated and how they destroyed them and and stuff. So they were all about power. They were all about authority, and it was all about their pride and their ego. And they built huge monuments to themselves. Basically, the pharaohs believed that they were God on earth, and they they wanted they expected people to worship them. And so this is the situation that we're walking into. We're walking into a situation of a person who wanted to be worshipped by people and he comes face to face with the living God. All right. So um, did did God sovereignly have Pharaoh put the Hebrew children to death? Right. I mean, these are questions that if you believe that God predestines everything that's going to happen to happen. You have to believe that God did that. Did God sovereignly have Pharaoh put the Hebrew children to death? Um, and and if, if God was ordaining that, then did the Hebrew midwives who didn't have them put to death, were they disobeying God? See, these are all questions that you have to ask yourself. And that's why I say that if you read the Bible, you can't believe that God just pre-ordered every single thing that would ever happen on the face of the earth. Um, did God sovereignly have uh, Pharaoh put them under bondage or were these choices Pharaoh made of his own free will? And the thing is, is again, God can know the future. God can know everything and stuff. God knew what kind of person Pharaoh was, right? I mean, God knew when, when you know, he, he knows us all intimately. He knows our deepest thoughts. He knows our hearts. He knows and that's 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 unbelievers as well as believers. God knows every man, woman, and child. He knows them intimately. And the thing is, is God wants relationship with every single man, woman, and child and stuff. But the point being is that God knew what kind of person Pharaoh was, right? But that does not mean that God ordained or caused Pharaoh to make the choices that he did. And again, think of it, again, think of it, if God... If God orchestrated all this kind of theater or, or whatever, God God poured out ten plagues on on Egypt to make them uh, to make Pharaoh give it. I mean, it's just it's insanity, right? To think of of uh, an all powerful being that's that's creating this kind of story to to satisfy what ego? I mean, to show. Yeah, it's it's just it, it makes no sense whatsoever, and and I can't, I again I can't see reading the Bible and believing things like that, and the the thing about it is is that the God we know is a God who is in the moment with us, right? And when we think of God, we think of a God who walks with us, who talks with us, who is our personal savior. He's not some God that, like, before the foundation of the earth began, you know what, I'm going to create Dean, and he's going to do uh, this, and on his, on his 26th birthday, he's going to get drunk, and then he's going to go to jail, and, uh, you know, 
He's not like that. He walks with us now and in the moment. And that's why when we are in the moment, when we are in tough situations, we can cry out to him in that moment, knowing that he hears us in that moment. Right? It's not like I'm praying to a God who heard thousands and millions of years ago, but I'm praying to a God who's listening to me now. God is in our midst now. He's not like this God who created the heavens and the earth and then took his and then just sits back. Right? He's with us. And it's that's the whole thing about Emmanuel. God is with us now, not in the past, some point. Um turn to Exodus chapter three. verse 1. And this is the thing. We have a God who loves us, who understands our our weaknesses, who understands the things that we're going through and is with us and wants to be with us. And in Exodus 3 verse 1, it says, Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why this bush is not burned up. Then the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, and God called to him from the midst of the bush, and he said, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Look at this in verse 7. Now, again, this is a God who is speaking face to face with Moses, right? I mean, not in his full manifestation or anything like that. He's using a bush to speak to him through and stuff because, you know, the Bible says no man has seen the face of God. But yet God is manifesting himself to Moses in real time. In Moses' situation, and he's speaking to him as a man speaks to another man. In verse 7, he says, The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. You see that? God is feeling compassion for his people because he's aware of their sufferings. He's moved by their sufferings. Again, he's not this God that that just ordered everything in some time, space, time, and, and everything is just creeping along, doing according to his will. He is there with them, knowing what they're going through, understanding what they're going through. And he says, I'm aware of their sufferings. Verse 8, so I have come down to deliver them from the power of the, the Egyptians and to bring them up from, the, from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, and the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. And I think this is good news. This is good news. This is the good news of the gospel. It's God with us. We have a God who cares about our needs, who cares about our situations, and acts on our behalf. And uh, turn to Exodus chapter 4. Because we, um, we, like, 
again, what we want to do is when we read something in Romans 9, when it talks about God hardening whom he will and, and all that, and he hardened Pharaoh's heart and stuff, what what we do is we take that one sentence. I'll, I'll read it again. It says, um, so for this purpose, he, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. And what happens is we stop right there. Right. And we build a doctrine around that scripture rather than going back to the original source and seeing, well, where did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Right. Because I want to know exactly where was it that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Because if we're going to talk about God as a God who hardens people, we need to see in what context and where it was that God does the hardening. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So in Exodus 4, and I think there's 10 cases in the book of Exodus where it talks about hardens, hardened hearts, right? And essentially, I want to look at every single one of them, Okay. Um, so the first one is in Exodus four, verse 19, Exodus four, 19, it says, now the Lord, now this is after the Lord had called Moses to go to Pharaoh and deliver the people. Right. And in verse 19, he says, now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and mounted them on a donkey and returned to the land of Egypt. Moses also took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now, God is saying at this point, and again, you can't read in the scripture what's not there. Okay. He says, I will harden his heart, but he didn't say I have hardened his heart. Does that make sense? And as we read along, we're going to see that that's an important distinction. He says, I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you will say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Okay, so that's the first instant. Uh, Exodus 7, verse 1. So Moses goes to Pharaoh and he's, he's doing the things and he's, he threw down the, the staff and it became a snake and all this stuff and Pharaoh's not listening. And in 7 verse 1, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You will speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron will speak to Pharaoh, and he let he will speak to Pharaoh that he let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. And again, God has not hardened his heart. He says, I will harden his heart, but he has not hardened his heart. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt by great judgments. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. So Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them, commanded them thus they did. The next place is in Exodus 7 verse 20. So this is after um, they turn, uh, this is again after Moses, Aaron's rod becomes a serpent and then Pharaoh's magicians do the same thing. Uh, in verses 14 through 16, they turn the, uh, the water uh, into blood, the water of the Nile into blood. 
And um, so in verse 20, it says, So Moses and Aaron did even as the Lord commanded, and he lifted up his staff and struck the water that was in the Nile in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, and all the water that was in the Nile was turned to blood. The fish were, that were in the Nile died, and the Nile became foul, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile, and the blood was throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret arts, and look at this, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to him as the Lord had said. Then Pharaoh turned and went to his house with no concern even for this. So it just says Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Again, it doesn't say that God hardened his heart at this point. Okay, the next place is in Exodus 8, verse 8. And I know this is kind of tedious and everything, but we want to look at all these examples because um, you, there's a progression that's happening. In Exodus 8, verse 8, this is when um, the Pharaoh was refusing, so God sends frogs upon the land, and there's frogs everywhere and stuff. And in verse 8, Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he will remove the frogs from me and my people, and I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, The honor is yours to tell me when shall the honor is yours to tell me. When shall I entreat for you and your servants and your people that the frogs be destroyed from you and your houses that the, they may be left only in the Nile? Then he said, Tomorrow, so he said, May it be according to your word, that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will depart from you and your houses and your servants and your people, they will be left only in the Nile. Then Moses and Aaron went out from, Mo from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord concerning the frogs which he had inflicted upon Pharaoh. The Lord did according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out of the houses, the courts, and the fields. So they piled them up in heaps, and the land became foul. Look at this. When, but when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, look at this. He hardened his heart and did not listen to them as the Lord had said. So in the cases before, it just said his heart was hardened. It didn't say that the Lord was hardening his heart. It didn't say Pharaoh was hardening his own heart. It just said his heart was hardened. But now it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. You see that? So the next case is in verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth that it, became, that it may become gnats throughout all the land of Egypt. They did so, and Aaron struck out his hand, stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats throughout all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried with their secret arts to bring forth gnats, but they could not, so there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But again, look at this. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Next place is in verse 24. Then the Lord said, Then the Lord did so, and there came great swarms of insects into the house of Pharaoh and the houses of the servants, and the land was laid waste because of the swarms of insects in all the land of Egypt. And if you go out, I mean, we're not going to really get into that right now, but every plague that they had was an attack against one of their gods. And so when God when God is confronting Pharaoh, he is he is not only saying that I am God, and as God, I deserve to be worshipped by you, and you need to, to submit to me. He was also saying, I have power not only over you, but over all the gods of Egypt, and no one can stand against me. So, 
in verse 24, uh, verse 24, he said swarms of insects and stuff. And go down to uh, verse 30. So Moses went out to Pharaoh and made supplication to the Lord. The Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of insects. Again, look at verse 29. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, from Pharaoh, and I shall make supplication to the Lord that the swarms of insects may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants and from the people tomorrow. Only do not let Pharaoh deal deceitfully again and not letting the people go to sacrifice. So what's happening is, is Pharaoh keeps saying to Moses, Okay, relent from the plague and if you relent from the plague i'm gonna let the people go and each time he refused to let the people go right and so god is uh, moses is saying to pharaoh let my people go if, if you don't we're gonna we're gonna send this plague on you and so pharaoh says okay and they send the plague and pharaoh says okay 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 make the plague go away and i'll let the people go and he keeps lying to moses so Again, he, he is hardening his heart, right? Verse 31, Then the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of insects from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. Not one remained. Verse 32, But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and he did not let the people go. So over and over and over, number one, I just wanted to show that it didn't, Pharaoh's heart, it just said his heart was hardened. And then it says that he hardened his heart. And then before he ever says that God hardened his heart and stuff. Um, verse, uh, the next one's in chapter nine. Then the Lord said to Moses in verse one, go to Pharaoh and speak to him. Thus says the Lord that the God, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will come, will come with a very severe pestilence on your livestock, which are in the field, on the horses, on the donkeys, on the cattle, on the herds and on the flocks. And basically it happened. Verse six. So the Lord did this thing on the next day and all the livestock of Egypt died. But of the livestock of the sons of Israel, not one died. Pharaoh sent and behold, there was not even one of the livestock of Israel dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people go. So over and over and over and verse eight or let's see. Verse eight. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take for yourselves handfuls of soot from a kill, and let Moses throw it toward the sky in the sight of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and will become boils breaking out on sores, out with sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they do it. They throw it into the air. It becomes boils on all the people and stuff. And in verse 11, it says, The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians as well as in, on on all the Egyptians and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. See, this is the first time where it says that the Lord hardened his Pharaoh's heart. It says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not listen to them just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and said to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go so they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people so that you may know that there was no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this reason, and we talked about this last week, he says, for indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name throughout all the earth. Look at this. Still, you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. 
So over and over, God is sending these plagues. Now, God could have wiped Pharaoh out on the first one, right? God could have, God could have sent a disease that just totally obliterated the, uh, the Egyptians and wiped them out and, and let the people go. But God was being merciful to Pharaoh. He was giving them chance to repent, chance to see that he was wrong, a chance to change his mind, okay? And stuff, and and over and over, we know the story. It takes God keeps sending plagues, and finally, Pharaoh lets the people go. Um, and the thing about it is, is is we read about uh, when we think about God hardening people's hearts. That's not the you know, and also in this story, we saw how Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So we know that biblically speaking, yes, God can harden a heart, but. There's also other types of hardening in the Bible. You can harden your own heart, right? Um, you can uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. I was just thinking that. Yeah. And that's the thing. We, we kind of major on this thing. Well, God hardened his heart. Well, there are other hardenings in the Bible too. And the, there, well, there are other ways that people's hearts become hardened and stuff and in Hebrews 3 verse 12 it says take care brethren that there be in any of you an evil un now again he says who's he speaking to he's speaking to brethren right and again in in Christianity there 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 are people who say well, if, if someone, they say, well, you can't fall away from God. And if someone does fall away, it means that they were never truly saved in the first place. Right? But over and over, Scripture, when Paul addresses the people, he's addressing them as brethren. Holy brothers brother. and sisters in Christ. People who had been born again. People who he's taking for granted are Christians and are saved. That's why he's writing to them in the first place. Exactly. And he never, the writers of the New Testament never once said, well, this person was not truly saved anyway. Right? It says, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. Right. So he's talking to Christians. He says, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today. Look at this. So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So sin can harden your heart. Um, turn to Ephesians 4, verse 17. Ephesians 4, verse 17, he says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their minds, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. So again, the, he's talking about Gentiles. They're being darkened in their understanding. Why were they darkened in their understanding? Because their hearts were hardened, right? Uh, and you can be hardened by, um, like, turn to Matthew chapter 13. Just there are things, like even 
it'll talk about the cares of this world and things coming in and just stealing our hearts away from God. In Matthew 13, verse 18, we know the parable of the sower, right? The the sower goes out and he sows the seed. Some of the seed fell on rocky ground. Some fell on thorny ground. Some fell on the wayside and all that. And some fell on good soil. In verse 18, Jesus says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. Now again, when you think of what happens in a real time, real situation, it's not like Satan is this this being that you see in you know on plays with with horns and a forked tail, and he comes and steals thoughts out of your head. It's talking about because you don't understand it, you harden your heart against it, right? And how many people, because they don't understand who Jesus is or they don't understand the gospel, they're like, I can't, I can't believe that, right? I know so many people like, well, there's no way that all the animals would fit on the ark. You know what I'm saying? I mean, so many people have so many reasons why they can't believe that Jesus is Lord. And again, it's only because their hearts are hardened. Okay. Verse 20. This is the one, the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places. This is a man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. So this is someone who receives the word of God with joy and immediately he's you know, he's, he's following it, right? Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And so there are a multitude of reasons why people's hearts get hardened. Verse 22, and, on, and the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is a man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. You see that? So again, there's a multitude of reasons why people's hearts get hardened and stuff. And uh, so the questions are, is, is divine hardening, is it irreversible? Is it permanent? Does it involve choice? And so I was looking at the Strong's Concordance at, at the words for to harden. And the words to be to to be hardened means to grow to be or to grow firm or strong. Now think about that for a second. It's not saying that something has changed from from say like a a liquid to a solid or anything. Or like instantly. Yeah, it's not saying like okay, you've got lemonade and now it's apple juice. It's the same thing. It's taking something that was in a present state that is solidified, right? It's like when you pour cement down it and it's wet at first, but it solidifies and it gets stronger. Just it gradually. Yeah. And that's the thing. And that's what is talking about when a heart becomes hardened. It's not like the, the, okay, a good person automatically becomes an evil person. It's a progression and it's something that happens over time. And it's something that, that happens because, um, because it's allowed to happen. Okay. Um, another, another word is kabod, which means to be heavy, weighty, or burdensome. And again, it means to grow strong. So again, in, in, in Romans, turn to Romans eleven twenty five, because I just want to look at this real quickly. In Romans eleven twenty five, and he's talking about Israel here. And actually he's continuing his thought from Romans nine. 
He says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Okay, so again, he says that it's only a partial hardening that happened. So again, we, we, when we think of hardening, we think that what happens is, is this person becomes locked into this hardened state, right? This person is, is, was maybe a good person. This person was, you know, following God. And now he has been solidified into this hardened state that can never be broken, that can never be changed. But if you read Romans 11, he talks about like that, um, he says, uh, he says that if they repent, they can be grafted back into the vine too. And so this hardening is not a permanent state, right? And I, what I'm trying to do is I'm just trying to get us to look at it a little bit differently. It's not as though God makes you a zombie now. You have been hardened into this place. You can never repent. You can never change your mind. Although I do believe that if you continue to harden your heart, you continue to walk in your own ways, God will eventually give you over to it. Romans 1. Yeah, and we'll talk about that later. And that's what I think happened to Pharaoh. God was dealing with Pharaoh. God was trying to get Pharaoh to repent. He was trying to get him to turn and Pharaoh would not do it. So God handed him over and said, fine, if you want that, that's what you get. And in relationship to the partial hardening, it even says the reason for God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Mm, that's and good. It, so it's, it's even including those people who had had their hearts hardened mm -hmm. in right. Israel. Mm-hmm. That's good. And so, and again, that does God just arbitrarily harden people, right? Is it like God, God was just mad at Pharaoh. He's having a bad day and he's like, okay, Pharaoh, I'm going to harden your heart. No, it's something that Pharaoh brought on himself. Okay. And so we, we saw that hardening was to be solidified into a condition or whatever. What is the heart? The heart is the inner man, the mind, the will, right? And so the heart is the seat of the emotions, your intellect. So when it talks about your mind, your heart being hardened, think about what it's saying. What it's saying is basically you are being stubborn. Isn't that what it is? It means you have adopted a certain mindset, right? It's like, this is the way I view this, and I will not view it any other way. Now, we all, to some extent, are hardened in some ways against certain things. Some of those things are good. Some of those things are bad. And in a lot of ways, we're not hardened, okay? Say, like, uh, if you want to talk about, um, I can't. Some, say like you're having a conversation with someone and you bring, okay, say like I'm talking to my son-in-law. I'm talking to him about cars. He is all about cars. He loves cars. And he could talk about cars for days, right? And so his heart is soft towards that subject, right? But when it comes, say like, okay, like even when it comes to political things, people's hearts are hardened to the other side, right? It's like, I don't want to hear what you got to say. You're wrong. I won't listen to that. That's because a person's heart is hardened to the other side, right? It's like, in, and it can be good things like abortion. My heart is hardened towards abortion because abortion is wrong because you're killing a life. Now, if that, if that life is threatening the life of the mother, then that may be another issue. 
Do you see what I'm saying? So hardening can be a good thing and it can be a bad thing. It just, it depends on what you are hardened to and what you're not hardened to. And basically all it is, is your mindset. It's your worldview. It's what you truly in your deeper, mo deepest, most innermost being, what you believe about certain things right? And if you're a Christian, your heart is open towards God. You love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you hate Satan, right? And so hardening is a two-way street, and hardening can be good. It can be bad. Your heart is open towards God. Your heart is closed towards sin. Or if you're a Satanist, your heart is closed towards God, but it's open towards sin. So that's all it's talking about when it's talking about having a hardened heart. It is not this like you are now this zombie. And I think that the way we look at it a lot of times is we like we we look at it as someone's being like you see movies where they hypnotize someone to to be an assassin and, and to shoot the prime minister of this one country, right? That really doesn't happen in real life because you you can't hypnotize someone to do something that they wouldn't do in real life. But I think that that's the way that we look at it. We look at, okay, well now Pharaoh's hardened. There's nothing that he can do about it. He's just this zombie now. He's just this puppet. He just is going to do what God wants him to do now. That's not what it was. God does not take away our free will. And even to the very end of Pharaoh had choices, even to the very point where Pharaoh got in his chariot and called his armies out and said, we are going to pursue these people and we're going to bring them back. He had choices until the point when he went into that river, uh, that, that uh, sea and the waters closed over him. Right. And I think that that's a great example uh, and and um, force of life, right? While we're alive, we have every opportunity to make our choices whether we're going to follow the Lord or whether we're not going to follow the Lord. And God gives us choices even up until the very last moment of our lives a lot of times. It's like, you know, we pray for people and we want them to get saved and we witness to them and stuff. And, and sometimes people, they just, they harden, they harden, they harden, they harden. I'm not going to accept until it's too late and the waters close over them. But it's not God's fault. And it's not because God did not elect them. It's not because God did not predestine them to be saved. It's because they refused when he called. He says, I held out my hands all day to an obstinate and disobedient people, but you would not have it. And that's what God was doing with Pharaoh. He was holding out his hands to him and say, man, Pharaoh, just like that last scripture we wrote, I could have wiped you out. If I would have sent pestilence on you, it would have killed you from the very beginning. But I had mercy so that you would open your eyes. Same with Judas. Jesus knew Jesus, Judas was robbing from the purse. When, when, when the woman bathed Jesus, broke the alabaster jar and bathed Jesus' tears, feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, Judas was the one that says, well, that money could have used, been used to feed the poor. And so even with Judas, Jesus, at the, at the Last Supper, Jesus is trying to get his attention. He's saying... One of you is going to betray me. Why is he saying that? He doesn't have the need to say that. He said that for Judas' purpose. He's saying that Judas, like you can change your mind right now. You don't have to go through this. And even when Jesus said, whatever you got to do, go do it. Do it quickly. At that moment, that was the moment when G G Judas had the chance to turn, to repent. 
and even like the op, like op, like he, he knows how it mentions how Jesus offered the cup to him and whatnot. That's actually like a, something of respect too. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, and he's it, like, he was offering Jesus every chance not to do it. Proverbs twenty three seven says, "As a man thinks in his heart, so is he." Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart with all diligence for from it flow the issues of life. Again, your heart is the seat of who you are. So again, when we talk about someone being hardened, it doesn't mean that they become this robot that just now walks through life and can't make decisions, can't make choices, is bound to do what he's going to do. It doesn't mean that at all. It means he has made his mind up and each one of us are responsible for the choices that we make. And that's why, and, and the Bible talks about God has revealed himself in all of nature and all of creation and stuff so that we are without excuse. And so God is revealing himself every single day to unbelievers. And yet we will not turn. We will not repent. We will not look and see that there is a God in the earth. And mankind is hardening their hearts against God. Matthew 12, verse 33. It says either Jesus, this is Jesus speaking. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. In other words, what's in your heart will come out eventually. The You brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they will give an accounting for in the day of judgment. So again, Jesus is saying, what's inside of you will come out. And that's why a lot of times I think that that's why God allows us to go through trials to see what's in us. You know, it's the old saying, if you step on a grape, what's going to happen? Grape juice is going to come out. And when, when we get stepped on, when life steps on us, when things happen to us, what is our reaction? Is our reaction godly? Or, or do we get out in the flesh and operate through the flesh? And, and God does those things. I don't say God does those things, but God allows those things to happen to us, not for him, but to show us what's in our own hearts. So again, we're not judged by God's eternal decree, but by our actions. Um, did God cause them to make those choices? And if he did, how could he punish them? And if God were the kind of person who would cause people to do things and punish them for it, what kind of person would that make God? And there are theologians, there are people with PhDs, with doctorate degrees that say this is exactly what God is like. God predetermined it, God caused it to happen, and then he punished him for it. God caused Hitler, God caused all the... The misery, the rape, the, the child abuse, God, that's all from the hand of God. I knew, I, I knew a girl one time who, who was talking about how she, you know, she, when she was young, she, she, she was messing around with a boyfriend and, they, and she got pregnant and they had, a kid, they, they had a kid and everything. But, you know, this was all part of God's plan. And 
the thing is, is that has infiltrated, that has filled the church like yeast. Jesus said a little yeast leavens the whole lump of dough. And there are so many of it. And even people who don't believe in Calvinism and still, still have a lot of this flowing in us. And every time something happens, we're like, God, why did God allow that to happen? Every time something bad happens, why did God cause that to happen? God did not necessarily cause that to happen. And that brings us hope. It's like God is not this God that every time something bad happens in my life, it's not because God caused it to happen. It caused because my neighbor is a sinner who doesn't know God and he needs to know God. And we as believers need to start seeing the world like that. Because the world needs to see a God who can change them from the inside, who sees that their actions are wicked, their actions are evil, and they need a God to come into their life and transform them from the inside out, changing them, revolutionizing them, and changing the world. And we've gotten this whole thing, we've taught so much that God causes everything to happen, then now we just sit back and watch it. Oh, it's just God. God's going to do what God's going to do what God. No, get off your butt. Get out in the streets. Go take your neighbor a donut. You know? Preach it, dog. And it, 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 it takes the responsibility. It takes away our responsibility. It takes away, uh, I, you know, and it puts it all on God. And God looks for a man or a woman to stand in the gap. God, is, his eyes search to and fro throughout the whole earth looking for people that he can support, that are true, whose hearts are completely his. And that's why the church is so ineffective. That's why the church is so weak and anemic and dead and lifeless because we, we've got this wrong conception of who God is. And it is not who he is. We have personal responsibility. I'm accountable for my sins. I am accountable for the things that I do. If I treat my wife like dirt, it's not God's fault. It's my fault. If my neighbor goes to hell because I didn't share Jesus with him, it's not God's fault. It's my fault. If there's a rolling blackouts and, and my neighbor goes cold because, because he doesn't have a fireplace and he, he doesn't have blankets, it's, it's not God's fault. It's my fault. Amen. And the thing is, is that when, when the Salvation Army in the, 18, uh, the, the 1800s, they were so powerful because they got up and did. They knew that they had responsibility. The church has the responsibility for the world. It's not... The American way, it's not, it's not, it's not goodwill. It's not all these companies. It's not the government who is responsible for lost mankind. It's the church. And instead of us transforming the world and changing the world, we change ourselves and want the world to come in and listen to our, our guitars and, and our, our stage lights and our programs and our, our, Fake, false imitations, and it will never change the world because God wants to change them through us. He doesn't want them to come, and it's just ridiculous. And we need to wake up. We need to wake up and see we have, and I'm telling you, until the church wakes up and sees that it has, we have personable accountability and, uh, for, for the world, 
Nothing will ever happen. We sit and bemoan. We sit and cry about how the state of things and, and how, you know, the, the government won't let the churches meet and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, well, it's on us. And God wants a people to raise up and take accountability. He wants a church, a glorious bride to mount up on their horses and to ride out and go forth the war because Jesus is going forth the war every day. And we sit back and watch it. The first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. It doesn't say love the Lord because he predestined you to. Or love the Lord because he elected you from before the foundation of the earth. It's a choice. Love God, hate sin. And that's why we must repent. In Acts 2, it says we must repent to be saved. What does it mean to repent? It means to change your mindset. That's all a hardened heart is. And that's the way I was before I came to Jesus. My mind was hard. People would give me tracks. I would wad them up and throw them in their face. I would laugh at them. I would make fun of them. And I wanted nothing to do with God. Until His Holy Spirit got a hold of my mind and made me see they're not the ones that are wrong. You're the one that's wrong and you need to repent. You need to change your mind. You need to change the way you look at things. You need to change the way you think. You need to change the way you need to change everything. And we can't do that without his spirit. It's not something that we do ourselves. I'm not trying to say that at all, but it comes with that first realization. I need God because without him I'm lost and then he gives us the power the ability to turn from our wicked ways again having a hardened heart is not like being hypnotized not like being a zombie pre-programmed to irreversibly to to kill somebody or anything like that it's simply voluntarily closing your mind to ways of thinking towards god and again I know before I got saved it was a choice, right? Because sometimes, like, and again, it's, it's like sometimes, again, like I would make fun of Christians and stuff like that. But then, like, I remember there were these guys, they were, I don't know how they say this any other way, but they were African-American. They were black people and they were Christians. And like, we would be out in the field when I was in the military and they'd start singing like gospel songs and I could, I, I had to go sit beside them just to listen to them. And I mean, because there was something about what they were singing that was just like, it was just insane. It's like, man, God is in that, you know? And so the thing, it's like, and that's the way it happens with sinners, with unbelievers. There's a give and take and stuff. Sometimes your heart is softened. Sometimes you're softening your heart and you're giving yourself, but then you pull it back, right? It's like dating and stuff. It's like you, you go out with people and stuff and sometimes your hearts are wide open to them. Other times you're like guarded and you're like, I don't know about this person. This person's weird, you know, and stuff. And so it's, it's a choice, right? It's like you, you're going out with this person that, you know, is is like saying off the wall things. I mean, 
It's like any relationship, you, 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 you're guarded against that. And that's the whole thing, is when we come to Jesus, we have to drop that guard. Because when we are lost, when we're in the world, we have a guard up against Jesus and stuff. And it's only when, and, and believe me, and it's not like this thing where it, it's true that it's only as the Holy Spirit comes and deals with you that you drop that guard. But the thing about it is, this, he's doing that with everybody. The Holy Spirit is in the world. He's dealing with everybody. He's trying to speak to everybody, but nobody listens. Because we don't want to, our pride gets in the way, or our success gets in the way, or whatever, our lusts get in the way. And it's like, I don't want that God thing. I mean, I know even people that I work with, they know I'm a Christian and stuff, and, you know, and they, it's like, you can, you know, when I get around them, they kind of, you can kind of feel that kind of withdrawing and stuff, you know, because they're like, no, I don't want that to get on me and stuff. <laughs> now, the Bible talks about where the fragrance of life to some, Right? To others, it's a fragrance of death. But again, we have the option of hardening or softening our heart. Jesus said no one can serve two masters because you're either going to love one or you're going to hate the other. And he also said if, if you're going to be my... Uh, um, he says he is not with me is against me. There are not. We can't be on both sides. It's one or the other, right? Our hearts are hardened towards Jesus or our hearts are hardened um, towards the world. We can't serve two masters. And that's the problem with a lot of people in church. They're trying to serve two masters. And that's why it says don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And we're trying to serve two masters. We're trying to go do the church thing and follow God. And, you know, and then we're trying to party with our friends and, and all this stuff too. And we want the best of both worlds. When it comes to Jesus, it's like you got to harden your heart against all the things of the world. That's the whole thing that he means when he says, come and die on the cross. If you want to be my disciple, you have to pick up your cross daily and follow me. And again, the cross wasn't something that the disciples wore around their necks. The cross is something that they saw people die on almost every single day. And so for them, it was real. It wasn't, it wasn't just this kind of theological thing in our minds. We're responsible as free moral beings for the condition of our heart. Again, the greatest commandment was love the Lord your God with all your heart. Turn to Romans chapter 2. So uh, the responsibility is not on God. The responsibility, we have a responsibility for our hearts. In Romans chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things, and we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same thing yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? And again, we've talked about that in the past, too. It's not like God being nice leads you to repentance. It's, it's his kindness that he has shed his grace on us, right? Right? 
He says, look at this in verse five, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person. Now that statement is all inclusive. That statement doesn't say, well, he's going to render to each person except you who prayed this prayer when you were 13 and you haven't lived for Jesus for the rest of your life. You've, you've done everything that you wanted to do and you've, you've lived for yourself and you've lived for the world, but, but that's okay. You pray to prayer. He says he will render to each person according to his, to these deeds. To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. I think an important word there is perseverance. Um, yeah. Because if we take kind of the kind of Calvinist interpretation of things, then there's no need for perseverance. Uh, and the sense that like, okay, once saved, always saved. You pray that prayer. It's done, you know, you don't do anything and then you can completely walk away your heart completely from God and it doesn't matter because, you know, you once saved, always saved. Yeah. Um, but it's by perseverance, you know, and we take a position like a, 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 a Joshua and say, you know, like, choose this very day who you will follow. For me and my house, we will serve the Lord kind of a thing and, and doing that on a daily basis. Good then, and then and this, even in that, when Joshua and them went into the land, it was a daily battle that they had to continue to, to fight and defeat the enemy. It mm-hmm. wasn't instantaneous. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's the thing too is Jesus has par- promised us tribulation, right? And again, you know, as part and parcel of this whole package, we just tell people all you got to do is say this prayer. All you got to do is come to Jesus, and He's going to make everything great. He's going to make everything wonderful. That's not what Jesus said. He says, if you're going to follow me, the world's going to hate you. And he said, through many trials and tribulations, we have to go to get to the kingdom of God. And that's the thing that we, you know, we need to start telling people. Christianity is not easy. It is not for the faint of heart. And people will hate you simply because you're a Christian. People will ostracize you. People will, in some countries, people will kill you. For being a believer. But we do it for the joy set before us. Mm -hmm. And because, you know, and because of not only that, but who, who we, who we with, right? Who we, who we're in love with. Mm -hmm. Turn to Romans chapter one. What does it mean that God hardened his heart? In Romans one. Verse 28 says, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God anymore, any longer, God gave them over to depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. But especially verse um, 28, where it says that God gave them over to it. 
And so what I believe is... Can I say something? Go ahead. Well, just several times in that Romans, all the, like there was always a priorness to that. Um, it says um, basically in their foolishness, their heart became darkened, you know, and professing to be wise, they became fools. They no. exchanged the glory of being corruptible God for and form of corruptible man. Therefore, God gave them over. Right. So basically there was sin there. There was pretty intense sin there and then God gave them over and then it keeps going it says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator for this reason God gave them over yeah. and when you went back down to 28 just as they did not seem fit to acknowledge God any longer God gave them over so there was always he didn't just randomly do it he didn't right. just arbitrarily do it there was reasons they yeah. were they were hardening their own hearts over and over again in various ways and, and pretty extensive ways. Therefore, God gave them over to that which their heart yeah. was already given to. And I think that's the whole point of yeah. the thing with with uh, Pharaoh, too. Is like, yeah, and that's the thing. There. And that's the thing is that God will give you what you want. And again, I think that God is very patient. Yes. Like, again, with Pharaoh, he poured out ten plagues on him. With Judas, God was always trying to get his attention. And, and with Saul, Saul was king 40 years, I think, after after God said, I was sorry that I made him king and he was going to replace him. It took forever for him to finally replace him and stuff. God is patient, wanting us to repent. God is merciful. And I, I still think to the very last, Pharaoh had an opportunity to turn. Mm-hmm. But again, the point being is that God will give you what you want. And the thing is, is whether we call ourselves Christians, whether we don't call ourselves Christians, if you pursue something, if you want to pursue a path of rebellion against God, eventually he'll let you have it. And and even in that, though, his motive is often like what Daniel says, for God has shut up all in disobedience that he might show mercy to all. They were already disobedient, but he's allowing them to be hardened in their disobedience that he might show them mercy. Um, if they repent and and then also like even Paul when he handed over the guy in first Corinthians 5 I believe it is uh, handed him over first he says I have handed him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that he might be taught not to blaspheme God it was there was a purpose and a point that when Paul handed him over to Satan that sounds horrible but that's what God kind of does like he hands us over to our sin oftentimes so that we can exceed the exceeding sinfulness of sin so that we can realize because sometimes we're so blind how yeah. dominated we are so that that we can can repent and come back to him well even uh in nebuchadnezzar when in it talks about how nebuchadnezzar was walking on his walls saying look at this babylon which i've built for myself and and things and and how mighty i am and it says god made him uh, lose his mind and made him eat grass in a field like a cow for seven years and then when when Nebuchadnezzar came after out of it, he says, "Now I know that there's a God in heaven, and I praise Him and all that yeah, stuff." Amen. And again, you know, even for Nebuchadnezzar, it was for the purpose of opening his eyes yeah. in Him softening. Because that's the thing: God will not soften our hearts, right? God expects yeah, us to soften our hearts. And he will do whatever it takes for us to finally yield to him. And that's the whole thing about having peace with God. Having peace with God doesn't mean that he quit fighting against us. It means that I gave up. Because I can't win against him. 
I cannot, I cannot defeat God. So I am the one that has to give up. And God could wipe me out at any single moment that he wants to. But he's patient, wanting me to come to my senses and say I'm an idiot. Mm -hmm. And in uh, Numbers 11, verse 1. Being handed over to our sins humbles us. Yeah. Like it humbled Nebuchadnezzar. And we can't come to God until we're humbled. Right. And so humility is the key. And sometimes him handing us over is his mercy because it brings humility. It brings a realization of the exceeding sinfulness of our own heart. Yeah. In Numbers 11, so when God, when Moses finally did leave the people out of Egypt and, you know, they're in the wilderness. There's no food. There's no water. There's nothing to eat, you know, and stuff. And so God gives them manna, right? God in his mercy says, I'm going to provide you with all the food that you need. Your your clothes are not going to wear out. Your shoes won't wear out. And so I'm going to provide everything that you need. In Numbers 11, verse 1, it says, Now the people became like those who complained of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some on the outskirts of the camp. Then the people therefore cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died out. So the name of that place was called Tibera, because of the fire of the Lord burned among them. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, and the leeks, and the onions, and the garlic. But now our appetite's gone because there's nothing at all to look at except this manna. So, again, this is a people who are hardening their hearts against God. They're complaining against God because they don't like how God's doing doing things. God sends a fire among them and wipes out a lot of them, and still they're complaining. Right? It's like if, if you've ever been around someone that all they can do is complain. Complain, complain, complain. They got nothing good to say. They got nothing positive. It's all just complaints. It's like, come on, man. See some positive here. Right? And God is providing for them. He's taking care of them. He's giving them water from a rock. He's, again, their shoes aren't wearing out. Their clothes, he's providing them manna every day. That All they got to do out is go out and collect it. And God gives it to them and stuff like that. And it's not enough for them. Now we want meat. We want the things that we used to have in Egypt. We want our leeks, we want our onions, all that good stuff. And I can kind of relate to that a little bit. You know, we've all been there. Well, man, I remember before I was a Christian, you know, these, you know, we used to have fun, right? And stuff. And you start looking back at those things and God says, you want those things again? Verse, uh, verse 31. So God sends quail. It says, Now there went forth a wind from the Lord, and it brought quail from the sea, and let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on this side, and a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp, and about two cubits deep on the surface of the ground. That's a lot of quail. Like, what was it? Like one and a half million people, supposedly? Or maybe even six million? Something? But it's saying, like, from the outside of the camp, a day's journey... On either side, and then it's like a cubit deep quail. That's a lot of quail. That's a cubit. A cubit's eighteen inches, approximately. Wow. That's a lot of quail. It'd be like walking in one of those like chicken 
Kirk and all the yeah, yeah. Oh, right. warehouse yeah. buildings, you know, yeah. just like all yeah. the chickens are like crammed together on the yeah. floor. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In verse 32, it says, The people spent all day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. He who gathered least gathered ten homers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. While the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very severe plague. So the name of that place was called Kibroth Hatava, because they were buried because they there they buried the people who had been greedy. And so again, just like we saw in, in Romans one, that if you want something bad enough, and, and that's the thing there's so there's a balance right okay you pray for things and when you're praying say like you're praying for salvation for somebody we we want to be uh we want to be we want to keep praying until god does it right so when when it comes to things that are for god's kingdom for that are completely unselfish then by all means keep praying keep asking keep knocking keep seeking right but when it comes to your selfish desires and things of that nature, there needs to come a point when we need to be able to hear God say, okay, that's enough, right? Or at least a heart position to be like, you know, you know, this is what I want, but, you know, not what I want. Exactly. Jesus, just like Jesus, not my will, but yours be done and stuff. And that's the thing, God, again, and that's why in a lot of ways to me, again, the church is in the state that it's in because this is, we have the church that people want. The church that we have right now, the American church, the church in the world, this is the church that we want. We have this church because this is how we want. And in 2 Timothy 4, verse 1, it says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, look at this, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. You see that? So, again, I believe that the church is in that same position. God has given us what we want. God has given us what we asked for. You know, we want a church where, you know, we can live our own lives and do our own thing and call ourselves Christians and it's okay. And the Bible says, in, turn to 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 7. says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. This was written 2,000 years ago. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawlessness, that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders and with all the deception of wickedness. Listen to this. For who? For those who perish. Why? Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe in the truth but took pleasure in the wickedness. 
took pleasure in wickedness. And just like you were saying earlier, why did it happen? Because they did not love the truth. They didn't want the truth. They wanted their ears to be tickled. And so God gave them that, right? This prosperity gospel that we have in America and in, in you know, they say that the prosperity gospel thrives best in third world countries because it, it deals, it, it goes directly to people's greed. And, it, and, and this gospel of, you know, that, that we preach, it's so, it's pride, it's all pride. You, you can be this great man of God and this great woman of God and do these wonderful things. And people put you on pedestals and they worship you like you're something. And then you fall because people put you in the place of God and you allowed it to happen. And what we're saying is what we are seeing in the church right now, I tell you by the Lord, is because God has given it to us. We have asked for it and God has given it to us because we have not loved the truth. We have this false pseudo fake Christianity, which God, <clears throat> which is not given to us by Satan but was actually given to us by God. Because mm -hmm. <clears throat> we asked for it. Yeah. <laughs> Dummies we are. Yeah, I was thinking about that today. Exactly that. But I was thinking about it more like um, in my own life when I'm not doing truthfully what God wants me to do, you know? Mm -hmm. Like if I'm just kind of neglecting that still small voice and just kind of neglecting that whisper and just kind of not doing what God wants me as a unique child of God to do, you know, and just obey him, even no matter what it looks like, you know, mm. that, um, <clears throat> it starts to put, it's like when Jesus warned against false Christ, whenever I'm living, like not totally for the truth of my own walk with God, you know, like what does God want me to do and obeying that, then it puts filters, like a screen filter over the truth of Jesus. Yeah. And so I start becoming a religious Christian, you know what I mean? Like I start just, I start doing things to check off like I've done this good thing, I've done that good thing, but meanwhile I've rejected the truth of what God wants to do in my life, you know? Yeah. And, the, and that's the thing, you know, again, uh, you know, we saw how like your heart can be hardened by the deceitfulness of the world and the things of the world and stuff like that. It, and it's, so the point being is that our hearts don't get hardened always because of like some blatant sin. Mm -hmm. Sometimes our hearts are hardened because we're not, we're neglecting our great salvation. Mm -hmm. You know, or we're not we're not sticking close to Jesus and stuff. Um, turn to First Kings chapter twenty-two, because again, we're seeing that God will give us what we ask for. Mm -hmm. God will give us what we want, and and again, this is a God that that very few churches teach. Teach, you know. In First uh, First Kings twenty-two, verse one. It says three years passed without war between between Aram and Israel. In the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. Now Jehoshaphat was a a godly king, and he was the king of Judah, but the king of Israel was wicked. 
Verse 3, it says, Now the kings of Israel said to his servants, Do you not know, do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us, and we are still doing nothing to take it out of the hand of the king of Aram? And he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to battle at Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am with I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Moreover, Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Please inquire first of the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about four hundred men, and said to them, Shall I go to Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not yet a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? I, I mean, this story just blows me away. Number one, Jehoshaphat, I mean, he asked, Is there not a word from the Lord? The king of Israel brings up 400 prophets. Jehoshaphat has enough discernment to look through them and say, There's not a single prophet of God among them. And again, we in the church today, we are so undiscerning. Anybody that says anything, we're just like, amen, or whatever. And, so, and the preacher can preach something that we amen, preach the exact opposite the very next day, and we amen that. And we have no wisdom, no discernment, and it's because we have no firm grounding in the word of God. Verse 8, the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he does not prophesy good concerning me. And there are a lot of churches like that, too. Mm-hmm. They don't say nothing good. All they say is doom and gloom. They're not even allowed to say anything yeah. bad. No. It says, But I hate him but he, for he, because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. He is Micaiah, son of Imla. But Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. I, I just love that because out of all these people, all out of and, and see, the four hundred prophets that represents unity, right? You got four hundred prophets telling the king, "Yeah, man, go up, go up, go against the king. You're go, go up there at Ramoth Gilead. You, the Lord is surely going to give them to the into your hands. The Lord has said this year is your year. The Lord has said He's going to bless you. The Lord has said He's going to prosper you this year." The Lord's going to be with you this year. All right? That's good, Dan. He says, uh, verse 9, Then the king of Israel called an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah, son of Imla. And I love the fact of Micaiah, that someone could come in against 400 prophets, this king that hates your guts, and say the word of God. He didn't love his life. He could have died mm-hmm. right then and there. And, and and the thing is, is we don't die. We don't even die. But the peer pressure gets to us and we're like, oh, I better keep my mouth shut. Mm-hmm. It says, now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting each on his throne, arrayed in the robes at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. Then Zedekiah, the son of Canaanah, made horns of iron for himself and said, thus says the Lord, with these you will gore the Arameans until they are consumed. All the prophets were prophesying thus, saying, Yes, go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And again, there are so many people that tell us, you know, God wants unity. God wants unity. We need to unite. We need to unite with Catholics. We need to unite with all these other groups and just be one people in the Lord because where the, you know, uh, where there's unity, the Lord pours out a blessing and all this. God will not bless false unity. 
And it is not a true unity when people are going against the will of God, doing things against the will of God, and calling themselves prophets of God, and saying that they serve the Lord and I want you to unite with me. And Micaiah said, no, I'm not going to unite with you. I'm going to say what the Lord is saying. Then the messenger who went to summon Micaiah spoke to him, saying, Behold, now the words of the prophets are uniformly favorable. We got unity to the king. They're all good. You don't say nothing bad. And, you know, and you think about it when he was actually talking to him and stuff. You know that he wasn't just saying, hey, you know, speak good things and stuff. He's like, look, man, you better say good things. Right? You know that there was a threat there. It wasn't just like, you know, all these other guys are saying good things. Just say good things, too. He's like, you need to make sure you say something good. But Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. When he came to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? And he answered, go up and succeed and the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. <laughs> Then the king said to him, How many times must I adjure you to speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? So he can't win with this guy, right? The king hates him because he doesn't say anything good. But then when he says something good, the king's like, I told you to tell me the truth. It's just like Jesus said, you know, John the Baptist came and, and you know, and, and he sang a dirge. And, you know, and the Son of Man came and dancing and you said he's got a demon and all these things. It's like you can't please religious people. Verse 17, he says, so, I, so he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each of them return to his house in peace. Right then, they should have just fell on their faces. Then the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? Micaiah said, and, and It's so awesome because we, we in the church, we always look to the crowds. We always look to the mega churches. Look how much they're doing. We, 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 when we're visiting our in-laws on Christmas, this person was telling us about their church, their mega church, and how their pastor stood up and said, I, I feel like the Lord wants wants us to collect a million dollars and stuff. And, and the people gave them a million dollars and how they were doing all these good things for the Lord. And they were doing all these things and stuff. And it, immediately the scripture in my mind is like, you're, you're filled, you're rich and increased with goods. And it's like they were preaching the gospel, but I know that the gospel that they preach has no repentance whatsoever in it, has no, you need to turn from your sins in it at all. It's a social gospel. It's a feel-good gospel. It's a just come to Jesus and you're going to be blessed gospel. And we always go with the crowd. We always think that the people, we always think the big churches, we always think that the, the big ministries, the big names, they're always the ones that God is blessing. They're always the ones that God is behind. And God was not behind any of those people except for Micaiah. That's the only one that God was behind and he was foolish he was i'm they were i'm sure they were laughing at him they were mocking him they were making fun of him and he was a nobody and they had these great men the kananas the the man who made the horns and stuff and oh look the lord says this 
I can't tell you how many prophetic meetings I've gone to and the Lord says this, you know, and he's using all these things, all this outward stuff and it's a it's a sham. It's smoke and mirrors. The Lord said, okay, verse 19 again. Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. Listen to this, verse 20. The Lord said, who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? One said this while another said that. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, how? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then he said, you are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all your prophets. And the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. Again, if we hardened our hearts, we refuse. And even in that, they had a chance right there to repent. Just like when, when uh, Nathan came to David and, and, and said, you're the one who, who, you know, and David said, you're right. And David fell on his face before the Lord and repented. That's what these guys should have done. But they didn't. They went up to battle and they got killed. And God was giving them an opportunity. Even, and that's the thing. We're, we're like, we don't want to hear any hard words. We would just want to hear good stuff. Well, it's the hard stuff that's a lot of times from the Lord telling you, this is your opportunity. This is your opportunity to hear, to turn, to repent. This is your time. Today is a day of salvation. Now, if you hear his voice, do not, do not harden your hearts. Turn back to Romans chapter 9. And so, when we go back to Romans 9, we ask ourselves, why is he saying this to these guys? He uses three examples. He uses Isaac and Ishmael. He uses uh, Jacob and Esau. And he uses Pharaoh. What is he saying? He's saying Israel has become Ishmael. Ismail, Israel has become Esau, and Israel has become Pharaoh, the older brother that persecuted the younger. Like the prodigal son. The prodigal son was directed to, the, to Israel and saying, you are persecuting the church. And that Paul is saying this to these people because they can't understand why God has, is, is now called Gentiles the chosen people of God why God has, has seemingly left his chosen people who were the Jews. Now he's chosen these Gentiles who we hate, who we consider to be dogs, who we don't even let come into under our roof, into our houses, who we don't let touch us because they're unclean. Now he has included these Gentiles along with us. And the Jews as a people had rejected their Messiah. And so now he's saying, okay, now this geographical people is not the chosen people of God. These are not my people. 
My people are the people who have the faith of Abraham. If you have the faith of Abraham, then you are the chosen. If you have been circumcised in your heart, you are the sons of Abraham. Not because of where you're born, not because your your rituals and your 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 keeping of the laws and the things like that, but your faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. That is what has saved you and made you one of the chosen. Mm-hmm. And now it has shifted. But the thing is, is and we don't have time to look at it now, but it was all through the Old Testament. We and when in cases like Ruth and 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 um, Rahab. When these these Gentiles were being brought in to the people of God, not only being brought into the people of God, but into the line and the lineage of Jesus Christ himself. God was including the Gentiles. And so that's what Paul is saying to them. God has brought these Gentiles in and out of the two men, the, the believing Gentiles and the believing Jews, he is making one new man. And Judaism is being left out in the cold and Judaism would be ended in 70 AD when the Romans came through and completely destroyed Israel and the temple worship and everything. And there has been no true Judaism since then. Mm -hmm. And so verse 19, it says, you will say to me, who, how, why does he still find fault? Who, for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make this? Make me like this, will it? Or does the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Now, when, when it says, for who resists his will, I don't think he's saying that in the sense that, again, that we teach that nobody can resist God's will. Because we have seen so many examples of it just tonight of people over and over resisting God's will. What he's saying is that basically he's saying, who are you as the clay to say to the potter, what are you doing? So again, in order to understand this, we have to go back to the original. So turn to Jeremiah chapter 18. Because when Jesus, when Paul is saying this to the Romans, when he's writing to this, immediately they're going to jump into their minds. They're like, I've read about the potter and the clay several times in the Old Testament. And the main places are Jeremiah 18. Verse 1. says, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, arise and go down to the potter's house and there I will announce my words to you. Then I went down to the potter's house and there he was making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter. So he remade it into another vessel as it pleased the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one, now look at this, because at first it's going to seem, again, like it's arbitrary, but then we're going to see that there's reasons why he's doing this, and it's not arbitrary at all. He says, uh, at one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. So it sounds kind of like that from if you just stop right there. But if you continue in verse 8, it says, If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. 
Or at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up to build up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I had promised to bless it. Which I had promised to yeah. bless it. And God, and, and so, and we had read earlier in, in Romans 9 where it talked about how the Jews were the people that promise and, and stuff like that. So God is saying, you, the, the, the Jewish nation, Israel, had turned its back on their Messiah. They crucified their Messiah. And the one that God sent to them, they killed and had put to death. And so they were, they were doing evil in his sight. Verse 11, so, know that, so now then speak to the men of Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning calamity against you and devising a plan against you. Oh, turn back. So again, we see it again over and over. He says, I'm planning, I'm, I'm planning evil. I'm fashioning calamity against you and devising a plan against you. But then what does he say? Oh, turn back each of you from his evil way and reform your ways and your deeds. So he's given them the opportunity to turn, to repent. He says, but they will say it's hopeless for we're going to follow our own plans and each of us will act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore, thus says the Lord. Um, Stubbornness is a hardness. Yeah. I mean, it's synonymous. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing. Um, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Ask now among the nations, Who has ever heard of a thing like this? The virgin of Israel has done a most appalling thing. Does the snow of Lebanon forsake the rock of the open country? Or is the cold flowing water from a foreign land ever snatched away? For my people have forgotten me. They burn incense to worthless gods, and they have stumbled from their ways from the ancient past to walk in bypass, not on a highway. To make their land a desolation, an object of perpetual hissing, hissing, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and shake his head. Like an east wind, I will scatter them before the enemy. I will show them my back and not my face in their day of calamity. And again, that's exactly what happened in 70 AD. Turn to Isaiah chapter 29. So again, Paul is using this reference because he's wanting them to turn in their Bibles, to turn in their Torah or their their the prophets and read these things. 29 verse 10. For the Lord has poured over you a spirit of deep sleep. He has shut your eyes, the prophets, and he has covered your heads, the seers. And again, Just because you have prophets doesn't mean they're speaking from God. God can totally shut their eyes and he can cover their heads. The entire vision will be to you like the words of a sealed book, which when they give it to the one who is literate saying, please read this, he will say, I cannot for it's sealed. Then the book will be given to the one who is illiterate saying, please read this. And he will say, I cannot read. Then the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelous. And the wisdom of their wise men will perish, and the discernment of the discerning men will be concealed. Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord, and whose deeds are done in a dark place. And they say, Who sees us, or who knows us? You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? 
that what is made would say to its maker, he did not make me, or what is formed say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. And so back to Romans chapter 9, when Paul is saying this, he's saying, look, you are, God is the potter, you are the clay, you have turned your backs on him, you have rejected his Messiah, and so as a result, judgment is coming. And you see it subtly all over the New Testament, they were expecting judgment to come. And so, um, so I just want to finish out chapter 9. It says, uh, verse 22, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, which he's saying God has every ability and every right to, to pour out his wrath, to make his power known, but what if he endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? So instead of God just willy-nilly wiping people out, and again, the, that's what the world, the world believes that God is this harsh, angry, bitter God that just destroys people left and right and, and, and has no mercy, has no compassion. If that were the case, every single one of us would be dead. It says, verse 23, And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, and again, when he says us, he's not speaking individually. He's speaking of the body of Christ, whom he also called, not from the, among Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. Again, God is making one new man. We, we have these two factions in the early church of Jewish believers and Gentile believers, and they're, they're warring with each other, and, and you know, they're trying to, they think, trying to think that they're better than the other. We, we read earlier in the, in the whole thing how, how um, do, the Jewish believers were leaving out the, the Gentile uh, reminder, widows and stuff. Set an alarm for 4 a.m. <laughs> Alexa, stop. Yeah, that's going to be good. And stuff, and just how they were mistreating each other. And God was trying to, over and over in the New Testament, you see Paul is trying to bring, bring peace between Gentile believers and Jewish believers and saying, God has torn down the dividing wall. You are brothers and sisters in Christ. There is now, therefore now no, no Jew, no Greek, no Scythian, no all these, but all is one in Christ. There are not these divisions anymore. And it doesn't matter that if you were born in Israel and you were born a Jew, you were born, uh, you know, you were uh, sat under the feet of Gamaliel and you were a Jew of Jew and a, a, a Pharisee of Pharisees. That doesn't matter anymore. Doesn't matter who you are, except that now you are a believer in Christ. Can I, can I read something real quick? Yeah. Galatians 4, 22 um, and on says... For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one of the bondwoman and one of the free woman. But the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear, and break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. 
And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. And he's speaking to Gentile Christians. Mm. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free woman. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm, and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I can testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You've been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you've fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. You were running well who has hindered you from obeying the truth. This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Um, and then he just goes on to talk about how we're all one in Christ Jesus um, and stuff like what you were saying yeah. before. And, and that's, a, again, the whole thing. The, the Jews, instead of accepting Jesus as the Messiah, they were trying to do their rituals. The and sacrifices. To get the Gentiles to do them as well. Yeah, and, yeah, and they were, you know, they're trying to keep the law, and through, and by the law, I mean the ceremonial law, the sacrificing of bulls and goats, and exactly. circumcision, and growing their sideburns, and and things like that, and and God saying you're following your rituals rather than following the one who all those rituals pointed to. Yeah. But yeah, that's real good. It says, uh, <clears throat> verse 25, he says, as he also says, let's see, let's go 23. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he preferred, prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he also called, not from the among Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. As he also says in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people. And again, this is exactly what the Jews were upset about. You're calling these Gentiles, these dogs, chosen people? These are not the people of God. We're the people of God. He says, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who is not beloved, beloved. And it will be in that place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they will be called sons of the living God. This is what Romans 9 is talking about. This is all what Romans 9 is talking about. It's not talking about God predestined individuals to be... Say, he's talking about people groups. Gentiles as opposed to the Jews. He's not even talking about salvation. Either. No. He says, And it will be in that place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they will be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning... And again, just like we were saying earlier, over all over the place in the Old Old Testament, these things were laying there. He says in 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it's only the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly, and just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us his posterity, we would have become like Sodom and have, be, have resembled Gomorrah. 
What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is not by keeping the law, the works of the law, but which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Again, in other words, they didn't accept they didn't receive Jesus as their Messiah, the epitome of that law, that written word, everything that that law pointed to was Jesus. And they wanted the ceremony rather than the actual thing. They wanted this, the type rather than or the types and the shadows rather than the substance. And Jesus was the substance and they were content with these with the the imitations rather than the real thing they they wanted the fool's gold rather than the real gold it says, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and who who believes in him will not be disappointed. So, again, a hardened heart is a heart that will not receive Jesus as their Savior. A hardened heart is someone who even hears preaching. Here's here's someone might witness to them. They might hear. They might even read a Bible from time to time. I, there there are so many like real intelligent the PhD doctors in uh, theology and things like that who read the Bible. But just like the Pharisees, their hearts are unaffected by it because their hearts are hardened and they won't humble themselves. And it all comes through humility and humbling ourselves and softening. That's what it means to soften your heart. It, it's just humbling yourself and allowing the truth to come into your heart. And, and that's the only cure for a 